you would follow as I read this psalm, this song of David that he wrote to the leader of worship at the temple, the choir master. We see in verses 1 through 4, a life separated from God. Psalm 36, transgression speaks to the wicked deep in his heart. There is no fear of God before his eyes. For he flatters himself in his own eyes that his iniquities cannot be found out and hated. The words of his mouth are trouble and deceit. He has ceased to act wisely and do good. He plots trouble while on his bed. He sets himself in a way that is not good. He does not reject evil. And then a life satisfied in God. In contrast, your steadfast love, O Lord, extends to the heavens. Your faithfulness to the clouds. Your righteousness is like the mountains of God. Your judgments are like the great deep. Man and beast you save, O Lord. How precious is your steadfast love, O God. The children of mankind take refuge in the shadow of your wings. They feast on the abundance of your house, and you give them drink from the river of your delights. For with you is the fountain of life, and in your light do we see light. And then a prayer. Oh, continue your steadfast love to those who know you and your righteousness to the upright of heart. Let not the foot of arrogance come upon me, nor the hand of the wicked drive me away. There the evildoers lie fallen. They are thrust down, unable to rise. Lord, open our vision Expand our insight, enlighten us through the Spirit of God, teach us the truth of your word. We thank you for this psalm. We thank you that you inspired its text through the genius of King David. And yet, Lord, we look not ultimately to the human capacity but to what the Spirit of God does through Your Word. And we praise You that this revelation has been entrusted to us, and I ask that You would illumine and help and aid us to gain from this psalm all that we may for the sanctification of Your people and for the conversion of the wicked, some among us here, and each one of us needing to ask where I land, who I am. Bless us in this time together, in this text we pray. May your name be praised as we have sung through Jesus. Amen. Does God love everyone? Does God love everyone? It really depends on how we define love. In one sense, yes, God loves everyone. In another sense, we might say, no, He does not. 
Maybe we should put it this way. He does not love everyone in the same way. The reasons for this and the hidden counsels of God are a mystery that we're never going to ultimately resolve in this life. Why it is that some bask under His love and others never see it. But it is perfectly clear that each of us willingly chooses how we will relate to the love of God. I think it is true that you will spend the rest of your life either resisting or rejecting God's love. And you may do so in subtle ways such as, I'm just not really sure if He loves me. Or in more overt ways of, I don't care anything about the love of God. On that scale somewhere, you will spend your entire life resisting His love or you will welcome and delight in that love. Embracing God's love and choosing to live in light of it, seeing it, seeing Him, receiving it, sometimes the Bible refers to that as fearing God. Now this is not generally a dread, trembling fear of the Lord, but a warm, reverent life of obedience to the Lord. What what would you say is the opposite of fearing God in the Scriptures, as the Bible uses that phrase? It's living as a moral fool. Tracking along these lines, Psalm 36 is about as basic as a passage that we can find in the Bible. It's beautiful. It's rich poetry. But it's a simple message that we draw from Scripture. There are people who reverently and wisely align their lives with God and His steadfast love, and there are people who do not. Basic. But before we dismiss this straightforward message, let's remember, let's really take note, we all come to this place today fresh from a world that systematically indoctrinates us to live our daily lives as if God is not there. He's just simply irrelevant. That's the breath you've been breathing in, the stench you've been breathing in all week in this world. He's not there. He does not matter. It's necessary then for us to come to a psalm like Psalm 36 and to breathe the fresh mountain air that clears the foggy heads and invigorates the spirits of God's people. This is our life, Psalm 36. This is who we are by God's grace. Psalm 36 sets the record straight. There are two ways. Choose wisely and read your world accurately. As David seeks to do that, he lays out, first of all, in these first four verses, this thesis that the wicked reject God's love and they live in moral darkness. The reference to God's love that I draw out here is not explicitly stated in verses 1 through 4. We just have rejection and resistance. But you noted it as we read through verse 5, your steadfast love 
Verse 7, how precious is your steadfast love. Then again in verse 10, his steadfast love is referenced. And so I think it's proper to read the psalm from that angle with this repeating theme. The wicked reject God's love and they live in moral darkness. You notice the superscript there at the head of the psalm to the choir master, the leader of worship at the temple. Here we are, gathered with God's people today, so long later, sounding these same themes. David refers to himself as a servant here, a rare descriptor of David, found only elsewhere in Psalm 18. But it's a contrast. I am the servant of the Lord. It, it, it tips us off to how he is relating to the God that he now describes as being set off to the side and resisted by those who are godless. Verse 1, transgression speaks to the wicked deep in his heart. Verses 1 and 2 are about as hard as I've worked on a Hebrew text and translating for a long time. These are two really hard verses. And you may find in translations different translations because of that. It's, they're just, it's just really difficult text. I have a feeling that it's probably is because of its richness, its poetic depth. There may also be some difficulties in transmission. All that just to be honest with the text. But here the ESV takes transgression and personifies it. It's like a person. Transgression is speaking to the wicked deep in his heart. To be fair with it, it is possible that David's talking about himself, that I have an oracle that I am speaking about the transgression. This oracle comes from deep within my heart, or it could be deep within the heart of the wicked. But in a, at any event, here is the point. There's no fear of God before his eyes. Now this is not the Hebrew phrase that we typically find translated the fear of God, which we find so often in the Hebrew text that speaks of moral skill and reverence for the Lord. This is not that kind of fear. It's a different word and perhaps purposefully. The fear of God here seems to be a bit more basic, a bit more primal. There's not even that kind of a fear of God in the heart of the wicked. They do not care what God thinks about their thoughts, their words, their actions, their passions, their goals. They just don't care. When breaking God's law should fill their hearts with fear, they feel nothing. And here's what that looks like, verse 2. For, no fear of God in his eyes, here's the evidence of it, for he flatters himself in his own eyes that his iniquity cannot be found out or hated. Neither the voice of God nor the voice of a tender conscience echo through the halls of this one's mind and thoughts. All that echoes down the dark corridors of his mind is his own voice speaking messages of deceptive flattery. The Hebrew word has an indication of slipperiness. There's a deception, a smooth deception that he's speaking to his own mind. What does that voice say to him? Number one, I won't be found out. And number two, it won't be hated. That is to say, God will not see my sin. He will not discover it. And if God happens to notice, He won't do anything about it. He may not like it if He does ever, in fact, trip upon it, but He won't act. 
it cannot be found out, it cannot be hated. That is, it cannot be resisted, it cannot be addressed. This is what echoes through the mind of the unbeliever. God doesn't care. I can sin with impunity. He won't discover and he won't act. So the conscience is thoroughly desensitized. It preaches only the delusional, slippery message that we can sin without consequence. And let's be honest here, lest something develop within our hearing that distinguishes us from this text. This is you. This is me. We've been here. Somewhere along the line, we've been in this place. We know what God's Word says against lying and stealing and gossip and greed. We know what His Word says about disobeying parents and filthy speech and selfishness and lust. We know what His Word says, but we disobey that Word thinking somehow we're going to get away with it. We know what God's Word says positively about loving our enemies, about kindness, about purity of thought and action, and yet we disobey God's Word thinking it'll all be alright. It'll be okay. It won't be uncovered, and if it is uncovered, it'll be excused. We know this trail. We all know what it is to live as if God is on vacation, as if He's not going to care. And when we do, when we live this way, we work off the playbook of the wicked. We've all been there at some point in our time, even if God has rescued us from it. But even as believers, we play off the playbook, we work off the playbook of the wicked when we think this way. He won't see, he won't care. Verse 3, the words of his mouth are trouble and deceit. He has ceased to act wisely and to do good. Both in word and deed, his life tilts toward trouble and toward treachery. His words harm, they deceive, and he acts in morally foolish ways. Verse 4, he plots trouble while on his bed. It is while he waits for sleep to come, he thinks about moral trouble, about what the next day will bring, and his mind goes instinctively to the evil that he will pursue. He's in bed with the devil. He sets, verse 4, he sets himself in a way that's not good. He does not reject evil. There's a sad truth. But verses 1 through 4, I think, are a pretty fair description of the celebrities of our day. Not all of them, but really the majority. This is really a descriptor of how they live their lives. From movie stars to rock stars, from pro athletes to fashion icons, from politicians to even some religious celebrities on the television. There is no fear of God. They willfully break God's law without meaningful concern and wickedness becomes a way of life. And while celebrities may get away with more than the rest of us, where do the rest of us speaking generically stand? 
on the sidelines cheering. We've heard of this, haven't we? The book of of Romans, chapter 1. They did not see fit to acknowledge God. God gave them up then to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossips and slanders, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. Though they know God's righteous decree... They may not know it well, they may have done everything they can to shove it off to the side, but to some level they know God's righteous decree. That those who practice such things deserve to die, they deserve the judgment of God, and yet they not only do them, but here it is, they give approval to those who practice them. This is a world apart from God. J.I. Packer in his book, Knowing God, has commented in a different context, but so fitting here. Our souls were made to run on the practice of worship, law-keeping, truthfulness, honesty, discipline, self-control, and service to God and our fellows. If we abandon these practices, not only do we incur guilt before God, we also progressively destroy our own souls. Conscience atrophies. That is, our our conscience grows weak. It doesn't speak out anymore. It doesn't say, that's wrong, don't go there, turn, go the other direction. It just doesn't speak. It atrophies like a muscle, it grows weak. And the sense of shame dries up. One's capacities for truthfulness, loyalty, and honesty is eaten away. One's character disintegrates. One not only becomes desperately miserable, one is steadily being dehumanized. And I I hope your heart aches as you see this. We see these people pranced out onto the stage. We see their lives celebrated in the media And what we're watching is people that are growing increasingly dehumanized. They're brute beasts with no message from God getting in and thus living out whatever sensual passion drives them. They're to be pitied, not cheered. From this foreboding picture, The song now opens up with brilliant light, and it's dark at this point. This is the wicked world. This is the world that is celebrated. This is the world without God. But now we see from the wicked who reject God's love and live in moral darkness, the psalm transitions at verse 5 to the godly who delight in God's love and live in moral light. They delight in the majestic grandeur of God's love. Verse 5, Your steadfast love, O Lord, extends to the heavens. Your faithfulness to the clouds. Now, something happens here we just got to stop and talk about for a bit, or I think we lose the psalm. It's one of those things you just kind of slip past and don't worry about it, but I'd like us to worry about it, to fret about it for a little bit here. So, you can put me on park if you're already losing it, but uh, work with me here, and I think, I think the psalm will open up 
much more. Did you expect him to say, your steadfast love, O Lord, extends to the heaven? Did you expect that? I've been troubled over this phrase for some time now, saying, why does it go there? If you only read verses 1 through 4, what would you expect? You read verses 1 through 4, the wicked do not fear God, they live sinfully, there's no thought of judgment. So, verse 5, the righteous fear God, they live holy lives, they live a life of blessing. That's what you expect, right? But he just kind of breaks out here in almost a jarring manner with the steadfast love of the Lord. What's happening here? I think behind it is the framework for verses 1 through 4 is that of the wicked person breaking God's law. The framework for verses 5 and following is also God's revealed word, but here the emphasis shifts from the law that God reveals to the revelation of who God is. God is revealing things all of the time in His word. Some of what He reveals is law, and the wicked break it, verses 1 through 4. Some of what he reveals is who he is, and the righteous walk in that light, verses 5 and following. So as sovereign king, God speaks law, don't do this, do this, and the wicked disobey. As sovereign king, God also speaks truth, I love you, and the righteous align their lives to this reality. So the godless are not aligning their lives to the law of God, but the righteous do align their lives to the revelation of God's steadfast love for his people. Seen from this angle, a reference to the steadfast love of the Lord actually makes perfect sense. What David emphasizes here is the majestic grandeur of God's has said the Hebrew word, his covenant-keeping, loyal, faithful love for his children. It extends to the heavens. His faithfulness reaches to the clouds. That is, God's love and faithfulness toward his people is never exhausted. This is a message our world will not proclaim because it has no category. Rejecting the law of God, it never sees the, sover- the, the, the steadfast love of the sovereign God, and so it doesn't preach that message. We come and gather as God's people to say amen and amen. The steadfast love of the Lord reaches to the heavens. There's no place where it is not found. It is a thing of grandeur and a thing of beauty. Verse 6, your righteousness, his steadfast love, his faithfulness. Thirdly, his righteousness is like the mountains of God. Unmovable, unshakable, unfailing, towering majestically above. Your judgments are like the great deep. The unfathomable reaches of the sea is the justice of God. We may not always understand it, but we can trust him. He will always do what is right. Man and beast you save, O Lord. Probably here, primarily in a physical sense, but certainly in a spiritual sense, ultimately, but here you preserve their life. Where the ungodly turn their face from God, fixating on their mirrors... The righteous lift up their eyes and drink in the grandeur of his never-failing love for his people. They look down into the depths of the sea and find it just turns to dark ink. It's so deep. 
It's so vast. Below us, above us, all around us is God's steadfast love. The godly delight in God's love in its majestic grandeur. They delight, secondly, in its satisfying pleasures. It's not just grand and great and awesome as we see it, but verse 7, how precious it is. How precious is your steadfast love, O Lord. The children of man, the children of mankind take refuge in the shadow of your wings. It's precious in the sense of valuable, of weighty importance and full of splendor. In the shadow of your wings, we have the picture here of a God who provides refuge and safety and comfort. And it says here, to the children of mankind. Is that believers or unbelievers? Men's adult class today, pay careful attention. Here we are. It's to both, right? That's mankind. They take refuge in the shadow of your wings. That's what the unbeliever doesn't catch, but this individual that stands up on a stage, let's say, whatever the stage is, a court, a field, a platform of entertainment, they stand up on the stage and they curse the name of God and they exult in the wickedness of their life. All the time they are hovered over by the wings of God. In His mercy, He shines light upon the just and the unjust. In His mercy, He covers with His wings the people who curse Him, as well as His people. They don't realize how He is a refuge. But as we move from that, and I think there is a sense of common grace here, of of natural grace to all, there is a sense of that here But notice how it will continue to work away from that toward the unique love that God has for His people. For they, verse 8, feast on the abundance of your house and you give them drink from the river of your delights. You ever see the image of Buddha? Um, at least generally how it's presented. That was a bit jarring for some of you, wasn't it? I'm <laughs> seeing on the faces, where'd Buddha come from? But uh, uh, you, you got that picture in your head, kind of sitting there like he couldn't really move if he tried, eyes sort of shut, this teasing of a smile. What does he say to you? I'm in utter serenity here. Don't bother me. That's what I see when I see these images of Buddha. Don't bother me. I'm, I'm meditating. I'm at peace. I am full. I am rich. I am here. And I'm in serene world. What picture do we get of our God here in verse 8? The picture of a father whose lavish banquet hall is open The door is open and he stands with open arms and says, come in. Come in and let me feed you. Come in and drink and eat from the abundance of my house. There is a table lavishly supplied, full of wonderful food. And there is drink that is flowing. And he says, come on in. 
join me. Drink from this river of delights. The God of the Bible welcomes us this way. There is always that invitation to come, to take a seat at the table, to dine to your heart's content. To drink indeed from the river of delights, which is that Hebrew word, Eden. Delight, a delight in God. The imagery, of course, is the Garden of Eden. The four rivers flowing to the surface of the earth from a subterranean spring of crystal pure fresh water, a place of refreshment, a place of abundance. And so today we feast on the abundance of God's house and drink from the river of His delights. And I, I, we, we need to get this. We need to grasp this idea. The Bible's consistent testimony is that knowing God is our soul's ultimate delight. Knowing God is your soul's ultimate delight. The one under the wings of God who is cursing Him, this one needs to come to understand this reality. God is His or her ultimate delight. For those of us who have come to know God, do we get this? Do we grasp this idea? When we turn from our sin, from leaning on our own understanding and fooling ourselves that we know better than God, what happens in our life? What have you filled in as the answer to that question? What happens when we turn from our sin and embrace the true God? Well, we turn from our sin. That means we give up all that makes us happy all the fun, and we enter onto a more disciplined, austere path of life. We suck it up and we serve God knowing that while it will be hell down here, we will finally enter heaven there and that will make the sacrifice worthwhile. There's some Christians who seem to think that and there's some Christians who seem to wear that on their face. Like, I'm really miserable in this life, just slogging through, trying to pull it off. Waiting for heaven when I really find some joy in this whole process. I hope as a church we buried that thinking a long, long time ago. And I trust as a Christian walking with the Lord, you've buried that thinking a long time ago. We feast on God's food and drink. We drink from the river of delights and we do so now. There will be a day when it's much grander, much bigger, much fuller, but we do that now. Evangelism involves a contest of ideas on some level, but as Jesus shows us, evangelism is always a quest for the joy and the satisfaction of the lost. We are speaking to people in misery and saying, here's the food and the drink. I'm a beggar showing you where I found the banquet, and it's open for you by the grace of God. Jesus taught us this, did he not? Think of it in Matthew 5. He said, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. There will be a satisfaction that they experience in this hunger for righteousness. Now, those who have no such hunger won't be satisfied. But those who are have it are satisfied. He says to the woman at the well, if you knew the gift of God and who it is saying, do you give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. 
Whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. This woman had had a heap of sin in her life. Jesus doesn't say to her, listen, I know you've been having a good time. I want to put a squash on all your good time, but help you figure out how to get to heaven, which will be a better time. That is not how he talks to her. He says to this sinful woman, this woman who'd been beaten up by sin for a long time, he says to her, come to me and I will satisfy your soul to the depths of your being. That's our God. That's who he is. This joy is in him. Few people perhaps have so thoroughly experienced the transition and also so memorably articulated this truth as the 4th century church leader Augustine of North Africa. In his autobiography, The Confessions, he describes this dramatic conversion from a life of wickedness to a life in love with Christ. And he said this in his autobiography, There is a joy which is not given to the ungodly, but only to those who love you for your own sake. This is a prayer. His whole whole autobiography is a prayer. Whose joy you yourself are. And it is the happy life to rejoice to you, of you, for you. This is it, and there is no other. They who think there is another pursue something else which is not true joy. Do you say amen with what he's saying here? Is that your testimony? Or are you on the line saying, I'm not so sure? I'm not so sure that following Christ is the source of joy. He continues two other places in this book. You were ever with me in my lostness, mercifully rigorous and sprinkling with most bitter alloy all my unlawful pleasures. You were making my life miserable because you love me, God, so that I might seek pleasures without alloy. Pure pleasure. I could not discover where to find such pure pleasure save in you, Lord. You have drawn me out of all my most evil ways so that you might become a delight to me above all the allurements which I once pursued that I may most entirely love you and clasp your hand with all my affections. It was my sin that I sought pleasure in your creatures not in you. Therefore I fell headlong into sorrows and confusions and errors. But as he said, there is a joy which is not given to the ungodly but to those who love you for your own sake whose joy you yourself are. And again, in eternity, we will certainly see a grander level of joy. We will see Christ for who He truly is, and drinking in that vision, we will be filled with a joy unspeakable and full of glory. But we have that joy now. You feast now. You drink now if you are in His banquet hall through faith. And 
he concludes this section, verse 9, for with you is a fountain of life, and in your light do we see light. The fountain of life, the source of all life, in your light do we see light, that is in the light which God reveals about himself, our lives are illumined by the clarity, the purity, and the truth of God. This is the image of light as it plays itself out through the Bible, the clarity, the purity, and the truth of God. Light is the opposite of falsehood, confusion, and impurity, and God is the source of truth, clarity, holiness. That is, He, as the source of life and light, becomes to us life itself and light itself. This is perhaps one reason why David does not lay out the simple, the wicked act wickedly, the righteous act righteously. This might be one of the reasons, because he wants to stress that the difference is not us, but God. It's the delight of His steadfast love that is the inspiration to live righteously for Him. It's not merely that the wicked do these bad things and the good do these good things. That's true, and you can look at it that way, and some psalms do. But here he's saying the wicked do wickedly, the righteous live righteously because of the steadfast love of the Lord. Why God enlightened me is an utter mystery, but finding life in Him is the key to living a life that is enlightened by the truth of His Word. The God that so many reject and tune out is the God whose voice I welcome and love and find is my hope and my strength. Do you delight in God? Is there a Christian that's lived on this planet that's not come to the place of saying, not like I should? I don't delight in God. he's, He's not the source of joy that the Bible seems to continually speak of and that some of His people speak of. You find yourself there struggling. I don't know that I delight in Him as I should. I don't think there's an easy answer to that. But I think that being right here, hearing this word, reading this psalm is part of the solution. We have to know this to be true. And as you leave this place today and head out into your workday world, you're entering into a world that is saying at every turn, God doesn't matter. He's not there. He won't notice. Float a prayer to Him if you're desperate, but He's not going to hold you to account. That's what we're going to hear all week long. What we need to know is the truth. Your soul's delight is in God alone. There's no other source. There's no other joy. There's no other pleasure that can supersede what God is to your soul. So knowing this, coming to terms with it, facing it, is a start of developing a, a love for God and joy in Him. Secondly, with that is to pursue it. Don't think He's going to hit you on the head with a magic wand and one day you're going to delight in God with full satisfaction because God just worked a miracle. Pursue this delight. Go after it by seeking the word that He has revealed about who He is. By walking in fellowship with His people. And thirdly, if I would even distinguish it from point two, and that is to pray. Ask God to give you delight in Him. Ask Him every day of your life. 
Ask him to reveal who he is in all of his fullness and who he truly is and find your joy and your strength in him. This isn't something that God just visits on some people and just withholds from other believers. There's a relationship here and a relationship where we can only come to enjoy God and find our pleasure in him as we come to know him better and walk with him faithfully. So if you're looking for some miraculous answer, some easy fix, there isn't that. But the good news is that's why we're here. We're here to slog through together to keep seeking our delight in God. But we're not going to apologize about that effort and that belief. He is our soul's ultimate delight, Eden. Our word means delight. Let's always take it to mean delight in God now and forevermore. He ends with a prayer in verse 10, and it brings out the themes of the righteous who love God, the love that He has for them, and the wicked and their end. Verse 10, O continue your steadfast love to those who know you, and your righteousness to the upright of heart. Here, the psalm now begins to bring to the surface the reality that's sort of been hidden to this point or just assumed, he refers here to those who know you. To those who are righteous and upright in heart. So clearly, the delights of God's house, the pleasures of relating to God, are restricted on some level to those who know Him. His steadfast love is unique as He relates to them. There's a sense in which His love covers all people and supplies for all people but there is a specific way in which his steadfast love is reserved for those who are his own. And that comes more clear here. Do you know God? Verse 10. Continue your steadfast love to those who know you. Do we know him? The only way to know God is through Jesus Christ, the only mediator between God and man. The God-man who has come to this earth to stand between and to mediate or bridge between the sinner and God. So where we need to start is verses 1-4 through is me. I've tuned God out. I've not wanted to listen to His voice. I don't find joy in Him. I don't love Him with all of my heart. Guilty as charged. Then to understand that God in His mercy sent the second person of His triune being to come to this earth to pay the penalty of our sin. To die for the forgiveness of sin. And to rise from the dead as the wellspring of eternal life. As the source, the ongoing source of His life now being given in defeat of death to those who trust Him. Knowing Him starts with meeting Him on His terms. And these are His terms. He welcomes sinners into His presence. He welcomes you no matter what sin you have committed. No matter how godless you have been, this Father opens His arms. But He does not welcome you in and say, we'll just forget the past. He welcomes you in looking at all of your past as a perfect, righteous, and holy judge. And he says, I want you to see there the image of my son dying on the cross. He's doing that for you. He's paying the price of your sin 
so that God can be just and the one who justifies us as sinners. On those terms, we come to know Him, and coming to know Him, we feast on the abundance of His house, and we drink from the river of His delights. So David pleads, verse 10, may that steadfast love continue to flow. Not that there's any danger that it won't, but his prayers work with the steadfast love of the Lord. And they celebrate it. Let not, he petitions God, verse 11, the foot of arrogance come upon me. That is, don't let the wicked put their foot on me like a, like a conquering king and defeat me. Nor the hand of the wicked drive me away. Protect me from a world that's bent against you and would love to crush those who follow you. Protect me from that. But here's the end of that wicked person. There the evildoers lie fallen. It's like he just sees them and says, like, right over there, there they are. Look at that field strewn with dead bodies. Over there lie the evildoers fallen. They are thrust down, unable to rise. That is, they're dead. The song ends where it starts with justice, with the wicked. Often it seems like the godless triumph. They ignore God and seem to enjoy life doing it. They persecute the righteous. They make our lives miserable. And they seem to live freely in doing all of this. But looking ahead, David prophetically knows that they will ultimately fall. They will be unable to rise like corpses on a battlefield. Those who reject the Lordship of Jesus Christ will one day experience the wing being removed and the judgment of His sword falling with clarity, with justice, with absolute purity and righteousness. What does David have to look to in light of that sobering thought that those who reject Him will suffer the wrath of God in judgment that they never believed possible. The God who wasn't there, they're going to stand in front of Him. David says, in a sense, I don't get it. I don't understand why. But in that world, I have this feast, this delight in God whose steadfast love never ceases. Two fundamentally different ways of living. One way of life to live my way, to ignore God, deluding myself that He won't see, that He won't care, that He'll never pour out His final judgment upon my sin. The other way is to submit to the Lord's rule over our lives by conforming thought and action and words and passions and goals to the Lordship of Jesus Christ seeking in Him alone our soul's ultimate delight. Is God's Word the standard? Is His being the relationship that rules in the halls of your mind as you live out your life day by day? Is it His voice that you're heeding? Is it delight in Him that you're seeking? Or are you seeking satisfaction and pleasures in the broken cisterns of this world that hold no water and leave you dry and empty? Are you delighting in the grandeur and the pleasure of God's steadfast love for you? It's interesting here. 
we bring that thought to a close, the evidence is not merely mystical. That is, it's not, I get the buzz. And every day I get the buzz from God and I'm in love with Him and He's in love with me and I'm just living on this, this cloud. That's not the evidence of it in this psalm. The evidence of it is what? The evidence of it is godly living. It's the opposite of verses 1 through 4. It's that joy in God changing the way I think, how I act, how I speak, how I relate to others, ever governing and guiding. That's the evidence. And that's the beauty of this local church. It is a garden in which this joy in God is nurtured and celebrated for His glory and for the good of His people. A body united Indeed, covenanted together to help one another grow and mature and pursue our joy in God alone. Let's pray. Lord, we praise you for the privilege to be the church and to live out our calling as the people of God today. We look forward to the opportunity for perhaps many of us, to gather for this picnic today and not merely to eat, but to eat with one another, to seek to be an encouragement to one another, to help one another find our delight not in the things of this world that are consistently proclaimed and set forward as all-satisfying, but to find our joy in God. And I pray for anyone that has not come to know the Lord through the work that Christ has accomplished. And we, are, we continue to pray for their conversion. And I pray that the life in Christ that we enjoy as an assembly would be rich and full and edifying one to another. That your name might be magnified as the source of all joy, all light, and all life. Through Christ we pray.